The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Hassan Spiker. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Paul. Good to see you, sir. Um, for those who don't know, Hassan is a philosopher and comparative scholar of Islamic, Greek and modern thought. He's the son of Anglo-American converts to Islam, members of a trailblazing group who in their 1970s communes initiated some of the first experiments in the revival of traditional structures of Islamic knowledge and Sufism within the desacralized context of the modern West. After growing up in a rich spiritual and intellectual home environment, Hassan spent 12 years studying the Islamic sciences in the Middle East. In the course of his studies, Hassan principally focused on interactions between the school of Ibn Arabi and late Kalam theology and also completed his memorization of the Quran. Upon his return to the United Kingdom, Hassan entered the University of Cambridge, where for his MPhil, he studied the works of Plotinus, Kant and Hegel under the guidance of Professor Douglas Headley, a renowned scholar of Platonism and German idealism, and one of the key contemporary proponents of Platonism as a living tradition. For his thesis on the relationship between platonic hierarchy and enlightenment conceptions of individual self-determination, Hassan received a distinction and faculty prize from the University of Cambridge. Well done, sir. His main area of study in Islamic thought is the intersection of ilm al-kalam, that's Muslim theology, Avincenan philosophy and experiential metaphysics. In Greek thought, his main area of study is the Neoplatonic critique of Aristotelian immanentism, and in modern thought, the philosophy <coughs> of Kant, the metaphysics of freedom, and the possibility of metaphysics. And Hassan is currently teaching at uh, Zaytuna College in Berkeley, in California, where you are now, I think, sir. That's um, right. Now, yeah, excellent. And today, um, Hassan has kindly agreed to discuss his brand new book, and here is my copy with a very interesting uh, picture on the front. Um, it's called, as you can see, a Hierarchy and Freedom, an Examination of Some Classical Metaphysical and Post-Enlightenment Accounts of Human Autonomy. Now, I've read half of this, and uh, I've got lots of green smudges all the way through it from my pen, and it is an absolutely intellectually riveting read and feast for the mind, and I do um, recommend you get hold of it if you want a really trenchant um, evaluation and critique of many of these ideas. But, um, and to give us a flavor actually of your rhetorical style and eloquence, um, Hassan, I'd like to read just a few words from the preface um, to this book, because um, I love reading poetry and there's almost a poetic quality um, to these words in, in uh, well, anyway, I'm just gonna read it out and then I'll let you, then I'll let you have a word in Edgeways. Um, so uh, in the preface to your new book, you write the following. 
This short book is an introduction to the vexed philosophical and historical relationship between hierarchy and freedom in the West. Freedom, although at least in principle a noble word, has become the mother of all banalities in today's culture, ubiquitous but, but strictly never to be defined, and everywhere employed by wisely wagging heads to want multifarious species of arbitrary and unprincipled human behavior. That's what I mean by the rhetoric, by the way, and the eloquence. The word hierarchy, you put inverted commas, contrarily, is inexorably prone in Western, contemporary Western society to elicit strong negative reactions. Again, the meaning of the word is scarcely ever specified or even investigated. But the associations of serfdom and feudalism, castes and power interests, and all manner of arbitrary and oppressive social arrangements nonetheless immediately cloud our minds whenever that fell word is pronounced with the nebulous spiritedness of righteous indignation and social activism. One might indeed be justified in branding hierarchy a trigger word, although mercifully nothing yet compels us to employ this or any other specimen of vocabulary for modern-day wokery's rapidly growing lexicon. Now that's dripping with subtext, I think. And, uh, I, I, I love that. I say the, re the, the eloquence and the rhetoric there is quite powerful. Um, so that's enough from me. Over to you, sir, and um, to talk about your new book, hopefully, Hierarchy and Freedom, an examination of some classical, metaphysical and post-enlightenment accounts of human autonomy. Well, thank you very, very much, Paul, for that very fulsome and generous introduction. Um, I think hierarchy is one of the most important metaphysical principles that we urgently need to recover um, in the modern world in order to counteract a lot of the unhealthy currents of thought and human practice and, and action which threaten human flourishing um, to re-establish the means of, of human flourishing on, on firm foundations, firm metaphysical foundations. And the, the first stage in that is to, you know, what I call in Arabic, getting rid of the obstacles. So it's not necessarily that we're ready. Perhaps there's a little bit of deprogramming we have to do first. That's often the case in the modern world. Um, in order to be able to understand what hierarchy is, because the, as you've just read from my my preface, the the um, you know, the general conception we have of hierarchy is laden with assumptions about inequality and oppression and and arbitrary you know, people kind of arbitrarily imposing their own power for their own power interests, um, which just has nothing to do with the principle of hierarchy is a metaphysical principle. It's actually not, it never unfairly advantages anyone. In fact, it's not really about individual human beings at all. Mm -hmm. um, we can participate in an objective, metaphysical, aesthetic, ethical hierarchy, for example, um, but it's not, it's not us. It's not like I was born to be at the top of the hierarchy and everyone else will just have to take their place under me. Um, and that's just the nature of things. You're just going to have to accept it. Um, <laughs> so it it's just about um, 
kind of reconfiguring these assumptions that we have, uh, which takes a little bit of work going back into the history um, of uh, you know, what I consider mostly, to, unfortunately, to be the deterioration of philosophy, not entirely. Um, there are many interesting and important philosophical developments in modernity. I'm not entirely against modernity um, because I just think any species of absolute reaction like that, mm-hmm. well, it kind of becomes a species of modernity, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of us, you know, Kulayomin Huafi Shetan, you know, he's always, as it says in the Quran, you know, every day he's upon a new creation, a new action, a new, it's not very easy to translate Shetan, but um, a new affair, literally, which means basically nothing in English. But the point is, you know, I think there's always goodness and truth and beauty in the world. And, and mm-hmm. there were many true insights in modernity. Um, it's not just a kind of traditionalist diatribe against everything that was is, you know, new or anything like that. Um, but uh, yes, I don't know. Uh, should we should we move to the slides? Or? Yes, there we go. Here we are. Yeah. So this is a other kin person. Um, uh, none of these slides or images or anything are intended to mock the people involved. I think that our role today is a role of healing. Um, I think that our dean is a transformative dean. It has a transformative power. And what I am trying to do and making a, unfortunately, not very substantial contribution to, but I, I, I hope to make a humble contribution to the project of getting out of the world religions bubble conception of our faith, um, where it's just a set of beliefs that we have, um, which are you know, fairly arbitrary, we, t- we happen to incline to, you know, the Christians have their own beliefs, the Hindus have their own beliefs. It's kind of like the GCSE, you know, World Religions um, yeah. book, where, you know, we all tolerate each other. We learn about each other. We have, you know, wonderful, polite tea mornings with each other, but we there's no mutual intelligibility. I can't actually express to the atheist, to the non-Muslim, why the deen of Islam is true, it's right, it will save them, it will heal them. And I think that it's such a a shame if we fall into the trap of viewing ourselves as just another minority who need to integrate, rather than we're here to heal, to bring people to the truth. Um, uh, Because our deen is transformative. I mean, in, in every dimension, intellectually, spiritually, it has that transformative power. So none of this just to be very clear, is intended to mock anyone. You know, today someone's got cat ears on, tomorrow they're a great saint. You know, there's there's no, um, you know, and today someone who's awfully holy looking and tomorrow, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to them. So, um, but the point I'm trying to make is, you know, this is an other kin person, which means, you know, this is, you know, last time we, we spoke, we discussed transgenderism, gender fluidism. There'll be a bit more of that today as well, because it's just very exemplarily symptomatic of the dominant philosophy of arbitrary, radical freedom, self-determining freedom, which dominates today's world. 
um, you know, they're extending this further. So the point is, you know, today it's, you know, someone can transform their gender. They can become in this extraordinary process, almost like transforming um, water into wine. They can actually miraculously become, if they're a man, a woman, or a, or a woman, if they're a man. But now people are extending this to become to becoming other species, identifying mm. as other species. Um, and this is related to, but not the same as transhumanism, which is the idea that we're going to augment our human nature and make it even more amazing by kind of fusing ourselves with computers um, and so on. But um, what what is relevant here is not the fact that there are other kin or transgender people. It's the fact that if you abolish the principle of hierarchy and if you adopt a conception of freedom which presupposes the, 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 the abolition of hierarchy, which the broad co contemporary conception of freedom, post-enlightenment conception of freedom, as I try to show in the book, um, mm. does, presuppose, does presuppose the abolishment of hierarchy. It, it's a sine qua non. It's an absolute requirement. If, if we're going to be free, we've got to get rid of the hierarchy. Any notion of intrinsic hierarchy, metaphysical, societal, moral aesthetic, um, mm. And so, so if I could just pause so I interrupt about this word hierarchy, which you do define um, in, in your book. Okay, yeah. could you just, what do you mean? Because hierarchy comes with a lot of baggage. You, you mentioned it in that preface, which I read out, you know, in terms of caste systems and inequalities and oppression and so on. But that's not obviously what you mean by hierarchy. You mean it in, in a positive meta, uh, sense. Could you just briefly uh, describe what you mean conceptually by that term? Absolutely. Um, actually, I had a, a ready quotation from the book, which perhaps would um, <clears throat> be the best way to try to achieve that. Um, I mean, this gives a very good example. This is on page 45. Uh, this is the hardback version, but I think it's the oh, same. Yeah, I've got the paper. I think it's page 40 in the paperback, yeah. Um, is it? Oh, okay. Oh, so, sorry, if you're talking about the, um, the, the term hierarchy, then you, you've got the Greek term, originates uh, the dialogue. Oh, no, this, is, um, this right. is 45 as well, but actually, you're right, that, that would be a good place to start as well. No, no I'm not trying um, to direct you. Yeah, don't. well, I mean, originally the term hierarchy, it says on page 40, as you rightly said, the term hierarchy, hierarchia uh, in, in Greek, literally sacred rule, originates with Dionys Dionysus the Areopagite, right, However, the basic ontology of, uh, ontology of subordinate and superordinate degrees of being that underlies Dionysus' account of the ordering of celestial and ecclesiastical entities and the repartition of divine knowledge and illumination far precedes him. Um, and the first major thinker to discuss hierarchy in some substantial detail is Plato himself. Um, mm. I wouldn't say that he's the first thinker to ever think of it, um, but the first to detail it formally. Um, but then on page 45, I write, in the Platonist understanding, then, hierarchy is not merely rational. There is a meaningful sense in which it is rationality itself. Hierarchy is discovered in the structure of the world, and the inherent structure of reason is its reflection. In the course of its investigations, reason discovers 
that it is itself an inverse reflection of that hierarchical order. It is only because being is intrinsically hierarchical that rationality can be possible at all. It is by participation in that higher ontologically prior noetic order that human rationality exists. For no individual instances of rationality, rationality and intellect can account for intellect and rationality per se as universal phenomena, capable of becoming manifest in inevitable instances. The aggregate of individual minds each take their share from the nature of mind in that they participate in an existent principle, in this case a degree of being, that transcends any individual mind. Plotinus and other Neoplatonists would call this intellect. In fact, I don't think that quote helped at all, but um, it doesn't matter because it's going to, uh, it's going to, we're going to unfurl the meaning of hierarchy. Okay, I, th I think, I mean, even though I, I did, because I've read this already, I did understand what you meant. It's not clear uh, to the uh, uninitiated what you mean, but if it's going to become clear through various slides and whatnot, then perhaps that's the best way, perhaps. Well, I mean, the, the, I can say briefly that, mm. um, we encounter hierarchy in everyday life. It's not a kind of will of will of the wisp, insubstantial metaphysical principle, although actually metaphysical principles are more substantial than anything else. But um, it, we encounter we're, we're encountering hierarchy right now, right? I mean, I'm a physical body, right? Um, situated determined, individuated, limited in a particular place. I can't be in multiple places at once. I'm here, and once I'm here, I'm not anywhere else. And I'm moving around, right? Not very much, but I'm moving my hands. Um, I'm gesticulating. Now, that's my soul, because soul in this traditional understanding is the principle of motion, right? Now, my body is subordinate to my soul, right? And because hierarchy is about structures of subordination and superordination. Um, again, subordination doesn't mean subordinating the lower classes and, and never, never should no. it. But, but the point is the soul is controlling the physical body. But then what, what is determining what motions? I have free will, I could do anything. I could overturn the table right now, could do all sorts of silly things or be much more sensible. Now. What determines that is the intellect, mm, right? Mm, so mm. my soul is the superordinate principle to the subordinate corporeal reality, which is my body. <clears throat> intellect is <clears throat> the superordinate principle to the soul, which moves my body, because the intellect decides between alternatives, what should I do? It surveys the possibilities, right? So your hierarchy is here, right? Here it is. Um, the, now, the interesting thing is people often think that you know, traditional philosophies, whether it's, you know, Suharawardian or Avicennin or Akbarian or Platonic, whatever it happens to be, are just a bit kind of far-fetched and fanciful sounding. Well, you know, that is their ontology, right? It's intellect, soul, and the corporeal world. And the point is, yeah, got, sorry. And the point is beyond beyond that very helpful sorry uh, description that you've given. Thank you for that. Is beyond that is the metaphysical realm, which okay. is another uh, uh, higher higher status, higher uh, ontology level above your even your intellect, which is that of the 
well, but one could perhaps go to, uh, I don't know, the angels uh, in this hierarchy would be the next level. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, of course, we're talking about the divine him, himself, uh, Allah, yeah. um, as known Islamic tradition. So, and this is an unalterable hierarchy. This is not something that we can change any more than you can change um, in the normal course of events, the, the hierarchy of intellect and soul and corporeal existence. Exactly. And, and the thing is, the reason yeah, sorry to interrupt. The reason we exist is because we're, with that configuration, intellect, soul, and corporeal reality, is because we're actually participating in that hierarchy. That's why it's possible, right? Because I, I didn't make human nature or physical bodies, neither did you, but we're both somehow participating in it. How is that? Well, mm -hmm. on that account, it's because we're, it's already there. It's prior. Mm -hmm. It is genuinely metaphysically prior to us. Those principles are metaphysically prior. Now, this translates in traditional context into a hierarchy in ethical judgments, in morality, in, 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 in mm. ethics, a an aesthetic hierarchy. Some things are actually objectively beautiful. It's not just a matter of subjective taste. We can say it is, but it's actually not. Um, the, I mean, there's a subjective dimension, but we can go into that. Um, there's a hierarchy in religions. Islam is actually the best religion. Um, uh, it's not just a matter of, of, of uh, will or I choose this and therefore it's just as good as what you choose. Uh, but that is the modern conception of freedom, that the supreme value is free choice per se, regardless of what is chosen. And what we have to celebrate is just the fact you've made a choice, not the objects, of the, not the things that you've chosen. Um, the Prophet Wasallam is the best prophet, although they're, they're all wonderful and we love them all, but he is the best prophet, the best messenger. Um, human beings are the best of creatures that God made, the superior even to the angels, potentially, not, not just by virtue of being human, but by becoming fully human. Mm, mm. Um, the angels are superior to the animals. Um, and um, so there's this, so, and why is that? It's because of, a, of participating in the hierarchy. So, you know, the, 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 the Islamic tradition tells us that human beings can be superior to the angels if they exercise their free will to properly order all of the possibilities of this very expansive mode of existence that we have, which is the meeting place of the angelic and the animal. And if we choose the angelic and order our nature so that the, the animal has its honored place but is subordinate to the angelic, then we're superior to the angels because the angels can only obey. They don't mm. have that extraordinary challenge of mm. ordering themselves. Um, and um, so, you know, it's by participating in the intrinsic structure of being that we ascend the hierarchy. Again, the hierarchy, as it says in is it, you know, details in the book, is not a static thing as we, we often conceive of hierarchy. It's this kind of just it's everything mm. fixed. Not at all. It's a completely dynamic process. People can ascend and they can descend. Mm. Um, the, the degree to which they participate in the intrinsic structure of being, where, as we said, in that very broad, expansive traditional sense, intellect is at the top, soul is in the middle, and then the corporeality is, is, is at the bottom. So, so that, that, that does away with the, the, the horror of the word hierarchy to do with oppression and injustice and inequality. That's not really what it's about at all. It's to do with this 
uh, uh, philosophical or metaphysical structure of being, the 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 uh, the ultimate being God, who is a necessary Absolutely. being, and that we are contingent. So there is that element of necessity and contingency in this uh, hierarchy of being. It's, it's very fundamental, isn't it? It's not uh, to do with particular social forms in the medieval Europe. I mean, that's not what no, we're talking. Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, what did happen is that they came. You know, at a certain point, as it says in the book, Dionysius Areopagite was politicized. Um, and they started to see that they, the strata of society reflect the celestial hierarchy. Right. Um, and they, I think they went a little bit too far with that. But even that is not properly understood, as I tried to point out as well. Mm -hmm. um, but shall we return to the slides? Yes. So basically, you know, the, 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 these are all on a level footing, whether it's a goth convention, um, you know, it's a Star Wars aficionado convention, um, whether it's becoming a, a cat or a shrew or whatever it happens to be. These are all on the hierarchy-less model of individual freedom promoted today, just as good as the person who spends their life feeding the poor going around and paying people's hospital bills in America, for example, where basically their, their, their life is over if they get ill and they don't have good health insurance. Um, you know, these are formally equivalent, you know, in terms of conceptions of the good, right? Because the whole idea of, of contemporary uh, freedom is that governments, societies, individuals, are there to promote individual flourishing, which means arbitrary free choice, pursuing your own conception of the good. So my conception of the good is becoming an other kin, for example, not being a human or pretending not to be one as much as possible, um, or being a goth and going to you know, heavy metal concerts, whatever it is that people do, and going to goth conventions and dressing up like a goth, or being a super fan of whatever it happens to be, whether it's cars or video games or Star Wars or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, this is very significant because it enters into law. It, it you know, from a traditional perspective, it, it, it unfairly disadvantages truth and reality for the following reason, right? So I'm going to just jump to the center bit here. Um, so, you know, there, 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 there are a number of very, very interesting court cases um, which uh, illustrate this advancing, this furthering of arbitrarism, this assumption of liberalism, of, of uh, the assumption of relativism, sorry, which is really part and parcel of the liberal order. Um, and, and which hopefully will, will illustrate what I've just, the, the, the um, uh, slides that I've just shown you. So in the Supreme Court judgments in the 1977 Transworld versus Hardison case and the 1985 Estate of Thompson versus Caldor in case, for example, individuals were denied the right to choose their Sabbath. And that means, you know, a, you know, they have working days, the particular employees, and they go to, they approach the their employees and they say, you know, I'm from such and such religion. I'm a Muslim, for example. I want to have my day off on Friday because I'm a Muslim, right? And 
their employers deny them and it goes to the courts to decide, right? The, the, the employers say, no, you can't choose your own Sabbath. Okay. The, the employers say no, right? Now, this goes to the courts. Individuals were denied the right to choose their Sabbath. In the latter case, the explicit reason given was that this would advance religion. Oh, God forbid. The wording was that it would unfairly advance religion, right? Mm. Now, you can see the secular logic of this, right? From the perspective put forward by these rulings, the absolute choice not to work on Friday or Saturday is precisely as arbitrary as the hypothetical wish of other self-identifications, say, say that of a self-proclaimed goth, not to work on Mondays. Because you know, what if the people who identify differently, what if they're a super fan or the most important thing in their life is being an other kin or it's uh, attending uh, metal uh, concerts or, or Star Wars conventions and they want to have Monday as their special um, mm. you know, gaming day or goth day or other kin day or or super fan day they'd be just as entitled so yeah this would unfairly advance religion what about other self-identifications why don't they get a day off why don't they get a holy day or a special day right so the self-proclaimed goth not to work on mondays or a gaming enthusiast not to work on thursdays to make special provision for the individual identifying as religious would merely be to discriminate against the goth and the gamer workers right so this is an example, a very lived and everyday and impactful example of what happens if you get rid of the principle of hierarchy you, and, and your conception of freedom is, you know, as Brad Gregory says in the Untended Reformation, the supreme value in liberal societies is free choice per se, regardless of what is chosen. The really key thing is regardless of what is chosen. If yeah. you start telling me you have an objective criterion for what we should choose, that's oppression. Now, the only reason someone can say something like that, and everyone, I mean, the majority of us would say, well, yes, that seems to make sense, that seems reasonable, is because we've had hundreds of years of the development of philosophies that have trickled down to us, to the masses, which presuppose and theorize and require the abolishment of hierarchy. So the idea that you can't order choices, that some are actually better than others for, for human flourishing, you know, that actually pursuing, you know, becoming the most pierced man in the world is not actually conducive to human flourishing. It's inferior to, you know, looking after your community and giving charity. That's not, you know, obviously someone who's very pierced can look after their community and give charity. That's not the point. The point is, your perceptions of your conception of the good. So we order our actions in accordance with what we consider to be good, our conception of the good. Mm -hmm. um, now, the state and the society at large informed by these liberal principles, as we'll see, do not, they have no justification for giving more protection and facilitation of that individual freedom in the case of someone who's living a traditionally virtuous, charitable life than someone who is just blockading themselves in their bedroom and spending 15 hours a day playing shoot-em-ups. 
Um, there's there's no objective criterion by which to 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 uh, prefer one over the other. That doesn't you know negate the fact that obviously most ordinary human beings would know which one is better. But theoretically, there's no objective criterion to prefer one or the other. So you know, here's another thing: get rid of hierarchy. It's very interesting. You know, Judith Butler, who's the most important uh, theoretician of gender fluidism today in the world. Um, she actually relies heavily, not just on dear old Foucault, but also on a very famous self-proclaimed lesbian materialist, uh, Monique Wittig. Um, so Monique Wittig says um, uh, this very interesting thing, which, which Butler quotes here. She says the demarcation, so when babies are born, you know, the demarcation of anatomical difference does not proceed the cultural interpretation of that difference mm -hmm. is itself an interpretive act laden with normative assumptions. Oh dear. That infants <laughs> divided into sexes at birth, which it points out serves the social ends of reproduction. I mean, who cares about reproduction, but they might just as well be differentiated on the basis of earlobe formation or better still not be differentiated on the basis of anatomy at all. <laughs> so, um, and then, in quoting, sorry, you're laughing, but Butler actually means this seriously. This is a quote. Oh, absolutely seriously, yeah. It, 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 is, it is laughable, but it, this is meant to be earnest, uh, um, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, this is, this is having a advanced detrimental effect on, on our society and everyday lives and, and the well-being, particularly of children growing up in this sadness. Mm. Um, then in, in, the, um, in the footnote, you know, Another thing that Butler says, you know, that one becomes one's gender seems now to imply more than the distinction between sex and gender. Not only is gender no longer dictated by anatomy, but anatomy does not seem to pose any necessary limits to the possibilities of gender. So, you know, these are kind of, this is early theorizing. These are a while ago before everyone also agreed with her. Um, so, you know, again, get rid of hierarchy. And you can say things like that. We can, you know, make you know, social differentiation, differentiation about earlobe formation. I mean, as far as our present scientific knowledge extends, you know, our earlobes were or the shape of our earlobes um, isn't responsible for the perpetuation of the human race or anything, but still, um, you know, about my my interest in this. Uh, I'm reading John Locke at the moment, uh, the second treatise in government. Um, uh, what has this got to do with anything? Well, th this is seen as the foundational text of modern liberalism by many people. And liberalism yeah. is seen as the root of a lot of these uh, con um, uh, contemporary offshoots of, of liberalism. Um, but particularly the, the example there about the, the baby not being, um, you know, classified as male and female. The idea of the tabula rasa, the idea of the kind of the blank slate, which is uh, a, a key concept uh, in Locke's uh, philosophy. The idea we're not born with innate ideas. Uh, and that our knowledge of the world comes from experience, uh, from sense impressions, uh, from ideas around us or within, within our minds as we reflect on our thoughts. But what we are essentially uh, blank sheets of paper upon which um, sense impressions and knowledge comes. Empirical experience is the root of uh, our epistemology. And, and I mention that because this is something that this blank slate idea, something that uh, even contemporary enlightenment scientists like this guy Steven Pinker who is a professor at uh, Harvard uh, in psychology uh, but called the blank slate 
and he rails against this idea uh, because he says it's simply unscientific. It's not true. If you look at the science uh, on gender, on, on other differences between peoples, there, is, there are clear, objective, measurable, quantifiable scientific uh, differences. You know, men are men and women are women. Yeah. So you can't just, in a voluntarist way or an imaginative way, just assert to the contrary if uh, you know, a boy's DNA is different from a girl's DNA, this matters because it informs our biological reality, which is denied in the blank slate understanding. We can just write on us whatever we want. I am a cat. I am a tree. I am a whatever, a girl or a boy. But, he, but Stephen Pinker, uh, even though he is very much within the Enlightenment liberal tradition uh, politically, uh, he, he says, uh, uh, perhaps idiosyncratically, that it is actually completely false when it comes to science. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we can agree with him on that. Not much. Else. Yeah, if, if only on that point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, that uh, sets me up very well for, um, uh, well, not that slide particularly. Um, mm. The, where is it? The the one on, yeah, here's dear old uh, Locke. Um, oh, Locke. Now, this is a quotation from Locke, from the, the book that you were just um, waving around. Um, uh, but it's also in my book. I'm not sure what page it's on, somewhere. Um, but um, But I think this sums it up brilliantly because you know this this idea was really quite a new idea i mean look what it, he says mm -hmm. he says the mind has a different relish as well as the palate we were discussing this capitalization earlier i mean god yes. knows why he, but it seems very arbitrary anyway the mind has a different relish as well as the palate and he will as fruitlessly endeavor to delight all men with riches or glory which yet some men place their happiness in as you would to satisfy all men's hunger with cheese or lobsters which mm -hmm though very agreeable and delicious fare to some, are to others extremely nauseous and offensive. Hence it was, I think, that the philosophers of old did in vain inquire whether summum bonum consisted in riches or bodily delights or virtue or contemplation, right? So whether it's hedonism or Aristotelianism or uh, Platonism or, you know, what is the good? He said, it's all in vain. They might have as reasonably disputed whether the best relish was to be found in apples, plums or nuts. <laughs> <laughs> if there be no prospect beyond the grave, the inference is certainly right. Let us eat and drink. Let us enjoy what we delight in, for tomorrow we shall die. So this is extraordinary. I mean, th there's a short and, you know, there's a fairly short road to contemporary constructionism from this, even though this is, you know, 18th, early 18th century. Um, because... Um, you know, this is an empiricist. Why is he so certain about this? Well, it's because he's an empiricist. If yeah. you're an empiricist, you cannot ground moral properties or aesthetic properties or metaphysical properties in being. It's really as simple as that. I mean, they are a priori, as it were, even though he wouldn't, doesn't like a priori stuff, they are a priori ruled out. Um, mm -hmm. So you, know, you can't determine what the good is because the good is not an empirical property. Um, and so what does he end up invoking? He ends up invoking this voluntarism. So there's no ethical and moral judgment and not revealed by the structure of being as we can experience it. So, or, or you know, the, the, the objective intrinsic nature of the good, um, the intrinsic hierarchy uh, that obtains between, you know, moral judgments is not revealed by the structure of being. So you can't derive a philosophical ethics 
by contemplating the nature of of um, experienceable being on on that empiricist model. So you're for you're forced to bring in this voluntarist divine command theory. So you know Locke is a believer in you know his particular um, version of of um, belief in God, um, which is you know fairly idiosyncratic, I suppose, not really particularly of interest, interest to me right now. The, the point is, he's a divine command theorist, so um, he thinks that the good is just whatever God happens to have have um, commanded. Now, of course, he doesn't have the Qur'an or the Hadith or the Sharia, so it's a pretty thin... Um, well, well, this, this is it. It's very, it strikes me, but you're reading... Uh, um... Locke, how minimalist uh, his conception of, of uh, the good is. It, it, it's quite a secularized understanding. It's not informed by uh, much in the way of, I mean, in the, obviously in Islam, one has the Sunnah of the Prophet, upon him be peace, as a, as a pattern, an example, embodiment of goodness and godliness. Mm. And that's pretty much absent. And one of the striking things in reading uh, uh, Locke was uh, a statement which is very unmodern, very unliberal, whatever else is there in Locke, when he says, about our species, about the human race, that we are God's property. That's the word he uses, property. Mm. And therefore, we cannot take our own lives. So suicide mm. is ruled out on Locke's basis because mm. we don't have ownership rights over our bodies. Right. Only God can actually terminate our lives, so to speak. Mm. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's, that's amazing. You know, that's almost, you know, Islamic. <laughs> but, but um, you know, it's the sense that we, so, so that that's not very moral autonom morally autonomous, is it? That we are my body, my rights, my rights to choose, leading to abortion on demand and so on. Here, no, God owns our bodies and only he can terminate. So you get that kind of odd, jarring bolt from the blue, which, yeah. which strikes as very traditionalist note. But then, as you say, in, in his more expansive, discursive understanding of, of of the good, it, it doesn't it, that doesn't hold anymore. There's nothing really to hold it up anymore. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about these um, early modern thinkers who are, who are absolutely instrumental in the emergence of full modernity that we're post modernity that we're experiencing today. That they do have these uh, leftovers from traditional mm -hmm. religious belief. But interestingly, when you look at Locke's natural theology, with the exception of the existence of God. Everything for him, everything else is merely probable, probabilistic, and possible. It's not necessary in any traditional metaphysical sense. So again, the, you know, his argument for toleration, which, as we were discussing, excludes Catholics and atheists, but his argument for tolerating you know, other Protestants um, and their and Muslims, he, he's probably happy to tolerate Jews, he says, and Muslims and so on. Oh, nice. He won't to tolerate Catholics and atheists, that uh, wish, <laughs> and antinomians. These idea of people who don't have, you know, a kind of a lawless existence. He sees them as kind of morally unacceptable for some reason as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, very interesting, but. But yeah. I mean, it's very interesting that his his celebrated doctrine of toleration mm. um, is um, founded on metaphysical skepticism. The, ult yeah. the, the ultimate argument yeah. is, and this becomes clear in several of his works, that well, since we can't really work it out for sure, we can't know for certain who's right. It would be unfair, basically, to oppress people apart from Catholics. It would be uh, unfair to oppress people on the basis of their religious because we can't really know. So again. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. This, this, this struck me. I, I mean, this is seen as a virtue. I was watching Brian McGee, the great British uh, English philosophy, and his. Oh, uh, YouTube, you can see his interviews in the nineteen eighties. He did with a whole way. Marvelous. I do watch. I recommend people Brian McGee on YouTube. This yeah, is a TV yeah. series on British television. He interviews a leading philosophers. Anyway, well, while I was watching one the other day on uh, a leading Oxford philosopher expert on Locke and uh, Berkeley, um, who, who just said. Hey, what I'm you, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, professor of, I think he's just retired, uh, of philosophy at Oxford. Um, you know, it, it's almost like a virtue, this kind of metaphysical um, um, probabilism. You know, we can't really know. Well, so humble, it's it, it, yeah, it seems yeah. so English, you know, but <laughs> but it's not really English at all, given, the, you know, yeah. the, the Christian belief. But, of course, Islam, I immediately thought of the beginning of Surah Baqarah, you know, um, the, the, the yakin that you know yeah. have certainty in the belief in the afterlife for yeah. example yeah. um yeah. The, the very character of islam it's not and, and it's, it's also very very tolerant not in perhaps in the same way but it, it acknowledges the existence exactly. of other you know, jews and christians and their right to live according to their own even though they're mistaken in some ways nevertheless they're not to be persecuted but but the, the temper of islam is is firmness of belief it is believing with certainty and that is how it's different from christianity certainly in the anglican variety which is riddled with oh well we could be wrong about everything <laughs> oh now it's uh, yeah hmm. anyway. yeah no absolutely thank you i mean um if we could bring up the slides uh, there's actually a really interesting one on that um so you know what we were saying about the, those court cases where they weren't allowed to have yeah. it. Well, contrast that with Islam. At the top, Al Ghazali was asked about the case of a Jew hiring himself, you know, offering his services to do, you know, as a handyman or whatever, um, hiring himself for a stated period. What was the status of the Sabbath which he would profane if he did not explicitly accept it from the contract? As and I can't work on the Sabbath. I have to explicitly state that. Yeah. Al-Ghazali answered that if their custom, that is keeping the Sabbath, is consistent and unchanging, simply initiating the contract is like an explicit stipulation of the exception. So they would automatically get Saturday off just because they're Jews. It wouldn't, there would be no question about it. Mm -hmm. That's all coming from the Sharia principle, Al-Adha Muhakkama, that you know, custom has the power of law. But I mean, look at the respect, look yes. at the acknowledgement of hierarchy. Um, so anyway, uh, you mentioned the Prophet Islam, um, and um, you know, I mean, if we talk about hierarchy, I mean, you know, we we acknowledge and respect and love all of the prophets. You know, Sayyidina Isa, Ali Salam, you know, Jesus Christ, um, Ali Salam, uh, Sayyidina Musa, all of the prophets. Now, but but for us, the Prophet Islam is at the top of of this very lofty hierarchy of of prophets. Why? Again, which will illustrate the nature of hierarchy. Because the Prophet Islam gathered within himself and manifested and perfected all of the as possible aspects of human perfection in a perfect balance. So all of the prophets are perfect. They're all perfect men. That's not an esoteric doctrine or or anything like that. That's just a purely standard Islamic belief. They're all perfect men. They have asthma. They have their the um, uh, infallible, but they don't commit sins. They're sinless. But um, but the Prophet of Islam, whereas Sayyidina Isa, it doesn't diminish his perfection. But whereas Sayyidina Isa, for example, never married, he is understood to be this 
perfect realization of human spirituality and the inward, right? Um, of intense, intense spirituality. Whereas Sedna Musa, he's a warrior. He has these qualities of Jalal, right, of majesty. He's a lawgiver, right? He's very much, you know, receiving the divine law and dispensing the divine law, right? So, you know, Sedna Isa, for example, Jamal manifesting beauty, Sedna Musa, Jalal manifesting majesty, whereas the Prophet Islam manifests them both in a perfect balance. Mm -hmm. So he sanctifies everyday life, you know, governed by law with, you know, this fullness of the spirit, right? So I mean, this is a traditional understanding of, the, of our Prophet Islam, manifesting this balancing of attributes during his lifetime in the world. The Prophet Wasallam was the perfected balance of all human types, prophet, mystic, husband, father, warrior, ruler, legislator, and so much more, of course. Mm. Uh, then another example of hierarchy, you know, as we, we alluded to before, that you know, human nature is potentially the supreme created nature. It's actually better than angels, you know, against, you know, modern speciesism, speciesism, um, you know, it's, it's objectively better than animal nature. Um, only if it looks after animals properly, obviously. And that's because of man's status as the Khalifa, as the custodian of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, let's just look a bit about how this works. Uh, you know, it also illustrates the, the 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 principle of hierarchy. Um, so this is you know from a very very famous uh, tafsir, one of the most famous, probably the most widely studied tafsir in actual madrasas over the last what six hundred years, um, is Imam al Baydawi's um, famous tafsir. So this is on. This very, very evocative verse of Quran 2.30, um, you know, um, I'll recite the Arabic. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. إِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنِّي جَاعِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةِ قَالُوا أَتَجَعْلُ فِيهَا مَنْ يُفْسِدُ فِيهَا وَيَسْفِكُ الدِّمَاءَ وَنَحْنُ نُسَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِكَ وَنَقَدِّسُ لَكَ قَالَ إِنِّي أَعْلَمُ مَا لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Right. Behold, thy Lord said to the angels, I think this is Arbery's wonderful translation. Behold, thy Lord said to the angels, I will create a vicegerent on earth. They said, wilt thou place therein one who will make mischief therein and shed blood whilst we do celebrate thy praises and glorify thy holy name? He said, I know what you know not. Right. So Beilawi says, it is as if the angels knew that the one made custodian, i.e. man, possesses three faculties, so this is the tripartite soul, that are each pivotal to his life situation, those of desire and anger, which can lead to corruption and the shedding of blood, so those are objectively inferior to intellect, and the intellectual faculty, which calls him to knowledge and obedience. The angels looked at each of these faculties one by one and said, what is the wisdom in making him the custodian? We, the angels, already exemplify all the good that can be anticipated from the intellectual faculty, yet we are free from the antagonism towards it threatened by these two other faculties of desire and anger. 
the angels did not know that the compound of these faculties, as in you know, man's having to overcome his desire and anger to order them properly in accordance with spirit and intellect, places him you know, at the very top of creation. The compound of these faculties yields a benefit that the individual faculties taken on their own fall short of, such as the ability to encompass all things and worlds, the origination of arts and sciences, and the drawing out of the positive characteristics of all existent things, the cultivation of the will, from potentiality to actuality, which is the purpose of the appointment of the custodian of the world. Wow. Beautifully put. Yeah, that's... Um, uh, dear. And then, you know, Adam was taught all of the names. He was given knowledge of all of the essences that make up the created world. Um, and the angels were unable to answer. They didn't know what they were. So, again, um, uh, that's a, a nice, uh, very fulsome hierarchy. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, um, we could proceed uh, in a number of uh, okay, can I just sorry just add, before yeah. we go on to uh, that lovely portrait of J.S. Mill there, and another Englishman, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, just about the question of hierarchy, there's a wonderful um, hadith, um, uh, a very famous hadith, it's in, it's in Bukhari, I think, where the Prophet, upon him be peace, uh, is reported to have said, "Indeed, each of you is a shepherd, and each of you is responsible for their flock. Yeah. The ruler is a shepherd over the people." and is responsible for his subjects. Yeah. A man is a shepherd over his family yeah. and is responsible for them. A woman is a shepherd over, over the husband's home and children and is responsible uh, for them. And, yeah. and that is clearly hierarchical, an expression of natural order as God intended, mm -hmm. as, as spoken of by the most perfect of human beings, as you said, the Prophet mm -hmm. Muhammad, MVP. So mm -hmm. I, I like that hadith. It's kind of Beautiful hadith, yeah. In the Quran, it says, you know, that, you know, men have a, a degree over women. Um, but there are other proof texts like that which show that there's also another aspect to hierarchy. And in some ways, women are higher up in the hierarchy than men. It's, it's not, it's a, it's a dynamic reality that, you know, pertaining to different aspects of life, different contexts. Obviously, yeah. women are higher in the hierarchy in um, bringing that entire human race into into the world. Um, and um, so there's this complementary um, relation, a mutually completing relationship. It's based on responsibilities rather than exercise of power. It, it has a Absolutely. certain element Absolutely. of caring and providing and nurturing Absolutely. and so on. Yeah. Uh, so there's that kind of dimension to it as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, I think it would be good just to go over what is liberally, because again, Liberalism, you know, as it's understood broadly today by most people in the in the you know the street like us, um, you know, it presupposes this flattened metaphysical landscape. So, you know, modernity, late modernity, post modernity, especially, uh, is often characterized as where it's the desanctification of of nature and and human beings and so, but also the flattening of the world, which is you know basically. The, the 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 abolition of any notion of intrinsic hierarchy, whether it's again aesthetic hierarchy, you know, where traditionally you know something is actually objectively aesthetically superior because it symbolizes the infinite. It's art, for example, which symbolizes 
the, the harmony and unity of the infinite. That is objectively superior than just some kind of blur which a modern artist makes and then sells for millions of pounds. Um, the um, the you know moral and ethical judgments are there's an intrinsic ordering of goods again, which is the, the extent to which the action, the human action in question, uh, aspires to, strives towards, participates in the objective metaphysical hierarchy. That is, for example, you know, when we subordinate our passions to the intellect, not negating our passions entirely. Um, but um, or, or you know somehow um, uh, denigrating you know the, the other aspects of our nature, but making sure that they're in harmony with and ruled by intellect. We are simply mirroring the real order of creation, and so you know that is objectively good. Whether whatever we do on that basis is objectively good. Now the the, the whole liberal context. Um, is based on the the, the rejection uh, of that mo of that model, if you want to call it, um, mm -hmm. and um, now, so I got this from the Cambridge Companion to Liberalism, which is um, it's a it's a pretty good book actually. Uh, a lot of interesting articles. I'll just just this this book. Um, oh. Quite a useful. I found it quite useful. But um, so uh, so yeah. So Frank Lovett in 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 an article in in this book um, summarizes quite beautifully what he considers to be the three definitive, most fundamental principles of liberalism. Right. The first is the liberal toleration principle. The second is the non-interference principle. And the, third, the liberal neutrality principle, right? So um, I think these will illustrate a lot of what we've been saying, that mm. the, uh, if not explicitly stated, but certainly strongly believed and necessary implicit beliefs when it comes to um, you know, the, the theorizing about liberalism. So liberal, liberal toleration principle, Public policies and institutions ought to be designed with the aim of protecting a private sphere within which some range of individual conceptions of the good and their associated life plans will be tolerated, right? Non-interference principle. Public policies and institutions ought to be designed with the aim of reducing interference so far as this is possible. Liberal neutrality principle. This one's key when it comes to, you know, our, our superfan conventions and, and our, you know, good Samaritans and, and charitable old ladies. Public policies and institutions should not treat some conceptions of the good or their associated life plans more favorably than others. None of them. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement. Liberal mm. neutrality means there is no, con no conception of the good, apart from liberalism, is superior to any other one, right? <laughs> And this, this is the paradox because it's saying liberal neutrality principle, but actually liberalism is the principle that we should abide by. Now, that's not neutral. That is an assertion of a metaphysical and political order. Yeah, but it requires neutrality yeah. of everyone else, a subordination yeah. into the private realm and everything else. So it's, it's almost it's smuggled liberalism as a, as a worldview is smuggled in the back door as the normative principle, whilst in the front door disavowing any 
exactly. um, a normative principle. So it's a kind of a almost like a trick, you, you know. You, we're, we're, it is a trick, and you know, it, it comes directly out of thinkers like Locke, who made this assumption, and they were so very certain about it, of empiricism that you know we really we simply don't. I mean, look, here's the world, and it's just the senses. We don't have access to anything else, um, and so that's why they they you know they 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 can present themselves as neutral because it's just well that's a common sense it seems to be just mere common sense you know, yeah. we, we can't ground you know a hierarchy or aesthetic uh, objective morality or anything like that in experienceable being so you know this is this is kind of just common sense absolutely yeah so you know just to illustrate this a bit further one of the most important thinkers in all of this is john stuart mill Mm. Um, you know, famous 19th century Victorian intellectual, public intellectual, um, probably the most, um, I mean, I, I suppose he has one or two competitors, but certainly one of the very most um, influential and well-known uh, Victorian public intellectuals. I mean, Herbert Spencer, you know, would be another one. Carlyle, who's... Mm. He's quite brilliant. Um, was actually a close friend of John Stuart Mill, um, and they fell out at a particular point. But uh, um, but they were very close friends. Actually, he's another uh, major major figure. Slightly earlier, you know, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who's now you know sign of the times, is thought of as a poet. He actually wasn't in that period. That was a kind of minor side interest of his, as far as people are concerned. He was, you know a hugely influential uh, theologian and philosopher. But in any case, um, one of the key principles, which you can see is the kind of conceptual architecture underlying the three principles that we've just seen, you know, is the, the John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look at the ultimately very, very thin set of, of fundamental really ultimately metaphysical, but ethical beliefs that, you know, the average man or woman in the street today has, as much as I hate using that horrible expression, but, um, you know, the harm principle is definitely going to be one of them. It's one of those intuitive things everyone believes, you know, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, I can do anything I want. As long as, you know, other people aren't hurting anyone, they can do anything they want. Now, it's just one of those extraordinary things. It's It just seems... To be self-evidently true and and good and 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 fair and well, you know the elephant in the room is well, you know what is harm? What do you mean by harm? And why is it that you are systematically excluding any conception of spiritual harm, moral harm, right? Harm to the human essence and human nature, and you know a whole list of uh, you know let alone, you know, harm to religion or, or offending God or anything like that. So, you know, it's this very, very um, reductive account of harm that it just means bodily harm and maybe, you know, harm to reputation, libel or something like that. So, um, you know, John Stuart Mill, and so, so I mean, th these are just very characteristic statements from him. Yeah, he says the object of his essay is to set one very simple principle is entitled to govern absolutely the dealings of society with the individual in the way of compulsion and control 
whether the means used be physical force in the form of legal penalties or the moral coercion of public opinion, that principle is that the sole end for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively in interfering with the liberty of action of any of the number is self-protection, that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. Now, I'm saying, yet why, why would his own good, and that's surely the good becoming established, not be sufficient warrant to justify the violation of that moral order, even if indeed it was against the individual's will? What if the orientation of his will in opposing the good was determined only by his ignorance of the mm -hmm. deleterious effects of his actions upon the whole of society? In clarifying, Mill makes it clear that to think in this way is to wholly misunderstand his position. There is no such thing as the good, one for all humankind. There is only the distinctly lower case good, which can either be defined by each individual in his own way, as Mill recommends, or agreed upon by the majority and then tyrannically imposed upon the rest, which he wishes to avoid. He actually knew Alexei de Tocqueville personally and the correspondent. Mm -hmm. He's aware of the idea of the tyranny of the majority as you know, one mm -hmm. of the pitfalls of, you know, like, Brexit as one of the pitfalls of um, of, uh, of democracy. Yet both are entirely relative to individual preference. He says the only freedom which deserves the name, and this is really you know, the nub of the matter, is that of pursuing our own good, not the good, not the real good, not the objective good, but our own good, the one we're making up, self-determining, self-constructing good, in our own way, so as long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to obtain it. Obtain it. I mean, fair enough. Each is the proper guardian of his own health, whether bodily or mental and spiritual, but of course that's all defined subjectively. Mankind are greater gainers by suffering each other to live as seems good to themselves than by compelling each to live as seems good to the rest, yeah. right? I mean, there's one thing that struck me. Um, sorry, just going back to that last thing about uh, John Schittmer. Uh, he's very explicit uh, uh, in, in this same writing that this principle of, of uh, harm, non-harm and freedom only actually applies to white Europeans. Now, I'm not being polemical here. This is what he says. Yeah. It does not apply to barbarians. They need to be ruled by, uh, by benign tyranny. So, yeah. the, so the, the, this is really a, a white uh, again. This is just simply what he says uh, elsewhere, and these are never quoted by people uh, when they are defending J.S. Mill or, or seeking to exposit his philosophy. This is strictly a white man's philosophy. It's not meant for the rest of the world. So when he uses like for mankind and all humankind and all this. Uh, we should understand that to be a very specifically local, geographically European white preoccupation and philosophy. It's not meant for people in India or in Africa or in Native Americans in the USA. They are excluded from this philosophy by him himself. Uh, no, it's uh, it's absolutely abhorrent. Um, but, you know, John Stuart Mill's too big to cancel um, because <laughs> he, you know, he's one of the most important theorists of liberty, individual freedom, and he's one of the most important theorists also of the liberation of, you know, um, women's lib, basically. Um, so, uh, in, you know, in his famous book, The, Subject the Subjection of Women. Um, and so I think he's too big to kind of just like Darwin. Darwin's a, a total racist. I mean, it's the whole basis. Yeah. Of the, 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 the ascent of man, for example, uh, is very racist about and, and, and the, how other races will have to be exterminated 
uh, not, not white races, non-white races, to make way for the progression of mankind. I mean, you know, this has been very comfortably fit in Mein Kampf, I think, that kind of survivalist... Uh, it was literally literally invoked by, by uh, not Kant, <laughs> Hitler. That's a bit uncomfortable. Oh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was explicitly invoked by Hitler. I mean, Hitler was a was absolutely fervent believer in, in Darwin and the survival of the fittest. I mean, survival of the fittest, to be fair to Darwin, is actually Herbert Spencer's coinage. But, yeah. um, but you know, again... Herbert Spencer, yeah, outrageous, racist, total outrageous. I mean, and this was a standard belief amongst these, you know, enlightened, you know, liberal uh, Victorian gentlemen. It's absolutely yeah, standard. Yeah, and of course, himself, what was a prolific uh, um, uh, racist in that he, uh, his work is interlaced. A lot of his work is preoccupied with. Uh, racial matters and the superiority of the white uh, races he saw it uh, but that but that is not normally i mean i've read lots of books on kant about kant uh, and this is never referred to actually it's always kind of discreetly ignored but it was it was central to kant's preoccupations uh in terms of his moral philosophy his understanding of human nature um racism was at the heart of his worldview um it's there if you want to look at it but it's not mentioned i've got a stack of books behind me by uh kant scholars they never talk about it Ever. Absolutely. It's extraordinary. And, you know, uh, that, that's another of the... Amazing... He's a liberal theorist, and, and another liberal theorist. I mean, he contributed to this idea of oh, yeah. a different way from Locke, but nevertheless, moral autonomy and the revolt against heteronomy, the idea that... Oh, yeah. You know, Etc. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other very interesting discussion, absolutely, on Kant and autonomy. But... Um, but, uh, I mean, that is another of the extraordinary, clear, certain Yaqini teachings of Islam, which is that you know, racism is absolutely ruled out a priori and in the original source text of the religion. You know, the Prophet ﷺ said, لا فضل لعربين على أعجمين إلا بالتقوى. There's no superiority of a... Of a uh, Arab to a non-Arab except in taqwa, right? And there are, you know, very similar hadiths. There's no superiority of a black person over a white person or a white person over a black person. He says it both way around, interestingly. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. That's, you know, made very, very clear um, in, the, in the source text. Um, I think that... Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that, I mean, I was going to go into Isaiah Berlin and talk about positive and negative liberty a tiny bit. Um, uh, but I think that um, maybe we could keep that for another day. We'd be going on for... Mm -hmm. Yeah, over now, now nine minutes. No, that, that's fair enough. If you, if you, we can certainly do a part two. Um, I, I think... Is I have to go to, um, to the college now and do office hours, so... Oh, I see. Oh, right, because you're you're in California, in, in Berkeley. Uh, yeah. I was we said we were saying uh, earlier. Uh, in, uh, uh, Bishop Barkley, as we call him in England, uh, was uh, uh, someone who was quite critical of Locke and, and rejected his 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 philosophy in favour of idealist understanding yeah. of. Uh, yeah. But but yeah. where you are in Berkeley, named yeah. after Bishop, his name after Bishop Barkley it is. <laughs> is it you? You mispronounce his name. That's that's my point. <laughs> but anyway. Right. I don't mean you personally. I mean the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a different way of pronouncing the same name, shall we say? Um, but no, thank you uh, very much uh, indeed um, for for this. Uh, this is the book, of course, we've been talking about: hierarchy and freedom, an examination of some classical, metaphysical, and post-enlightenment accounts 
of human autonomy and there's a whole chapter there on uh, john locke and uh, platonism and so on and um i also want to mention a previous uh publication of yours the meta uh, metacritic of kant and the possibility of metaphysics another very juicy tome and that's actually uh I think a photograph of Kant's tomb, I suppose, or yeah. uh, where he is buried uh, in Germany, I assume. Um, so I do recommend uh, both of them. Do do get get a copy, but this one is the latest offering. Uh, but you're working on a much. Uh, you say, I think, in your introduction, uh, maybe that you're working on a much longer, uh, more substantive work. As if this wasn't substantive enough. Is that right? Uh, you didn't mention my Nafsalamra book, which is my very very humble best book, by the way. But oh. um, but the. Uh, but the um, no, I'm just kidding. But the but uh, yes, well, I'm working on a. I'm collaborating with a, an amazing. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you'd want me to mention him yet, but uh, an amazing Muslim moral philosopher on a, a much more substantial book on comparative ethics, uh, comparative Islamic and other uh, ethical systems, which will it's kind of will be a much more expanded sequel to Hierarchy and Freedom. Hierarchy and Freedom, as you will have noted, doesn't go into hierarchy and freedom in Islam very much. It's just right. trying to kind of lay the foundations and understanding, you know, our contemporary context. Right. right. Oh, good. So this is going to, so, oh, I see. So the sequel will actually go into is, the Islamic tradition much more. I noticed that that was only very briefly touched on in, in hierarchy and freedom. Oh, that, that's good. Okay. Well, inshallah, I look forward to, uh, well, success with that, you and your mysterious uh, collaborator. Um, Thank you. Look forward to that. And uh, thank you again very much, Hassan uh, Spiker, for your uh, extremely valuable time. Uh, I mean, absolute yeah. pleasure as always. You're always welcome on Blogging Theology to share your uh, sparkling intellect and your knowledge with, with us all. So thank you very much. Until next time, inshallah. Inshallah.